0: radio shows you love from the people you know this is Sam talks technology hello and welcome again to another episode of Sam talks technology and i'm super excited because i've got a special guest who is in the uk but is now residing in the us he's the executive communications director at microsoft it's paul fabretti paul hello and welcome Hi, Sam. It's uh, finally nice to speak to you after many decades of online exchanges. Indeed. Um, we find you in the sunny Harrogate today, I believe.
1: Yeah, we um, four weeks into New Role, I decided to take three weeks vacation. Um, so, yeah, we're on our part, uh, stage one of a, of a two-part European trip. So um heading back to Seattle in uh, late July
0: brilliant the Fabrettis do Europe I, there's a film in there somewhere <laughs> I'm
1: thinking more about the Griswolds but I'll say <laughs>
0: <laughs> um Paul um obviously uh I knew you in your days when you were at 02 but obviously you've got a really exciting and very big role I think in in Microsoft can you give everyone who's listening um a flavor of what this new role that you've just taken on what it what it does and what 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 does your day-to-day look like I guess yeah, so it's, it's a relatively new
1: for the business. It's working for the um, uh, Microsoft US subsidiary. So that's a 7,000-person, um, 30-something billion-dollar business that is um, entirely based out of the US. Um, and my role is to, to drive, I, I guess, executive consistency across their external communications, which is, is rather a grand way of saying it's just to make sure all our the leadership are saying the right things and the same things Um, as as a U.S. subsidiary
0: who same as the rest. As
1: as as the so our our president, Kate Johnson, um, you know, has a lot of um, new areas that she wants to explore in terms of opportunity. Um, But also we have a lot of um, and I guess this is maybe inherent with being a, a field organization. We have a lot of salespeople that often cite. Um, leadership material as part of the way they may try and open doors or grow opportunities within accounts and we want to make sure that with certain key um, that we are singing from the same hymn sheet so whether it be you know we, take we talk about AI for example um, there is a huge opportunity commercial opportunity with AI but we need to make sure we're being seen as a, as a responsible developer of um, AI technology and that can be through access to the AI platform as much as it is um, empowering trade associations to understand the technology, working with local government to make sure it's being uh, implemented responsibly and ethically. So um, and, that's, and that's hard when you've got a big organization that is commercially driven. Um, to try and find a way to be able to make sure that the LT across, whether they are partners, whether they are a leader in regulated industries, or even just an out-and-out out out sales uh, function uh, leader, um, that they are saying the same thing consistently, albeit with a slightly different nuance. And and that's quite a challenge because, as, as you can imagine, with a, such a significant size business with such significant revenues, um, there is a lot of need to be to be able to close business quickly and the last thing we need is is ambiguity um in 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 the way we sell our technology and so the role is as i say new but i think one that's really important in order to make sure that all our executives are saying the same thing about the same point of view and i think that's it The, the, the the second part to that i think is also about the way in which we align to microsoft globally um, when you look at what Satya and Brett Smith talk about, um, about a, a real serious societal responsibility to develop um, AI, um, that has to, that has to, I mean, as, as a field team, we are right in the weeds as far as building AI-based products, and, and we need to make sure that we are being seen to be acting as responsibly as our messaging at a very high level, and, and that's a, that's a critical key to to our success because Microsoft is built on trust uh, and you need to have trust in what we say and do.
0: So what is Microsoft today? Because the Microsoft that I used to work for is not the Microsoft of today. Um, Microsoft, when I was there, was a desktop-driven Windows, Wintel uh, platform licensed company. Um, And it migrated into you know, some services and we, we, when I was there, we, we started to see the exchange SQL Server back office, as it was called, platform begin to evolve. Um, and obviously I left, uh, many, many years ago. Um, but you know, where is the balance now between Microsoft being the Azure company and the Windows office company or, or is there, you know, no difference? It, it's both. What's the story now for Microsoft, I guess?
1: Microsoft, it's I would say it's probably anything that anybody wants it to be, um, and I think that in at its heart, and and you know at the end of the day we talk about um, empowering every every single person or organization to achieve more. Um, we have a breadth of tools now, and an access to tools or uh, provide the access to tools that will allow anybody to do anything they want with what we have, and and there is almost nothing. I mean there is. Almost no wrong way to use our tools, if that makes sense. You, you can use PowerPoint for, you know, an Excel spreadsheet if you so wish. You can use OneNote to draw and do your math calculations if you want to. Now, there is no right or wrong way to use a lot of what we what we sell. But ultimately, I think the cloud is what's enabled us to to get to that stage. Because there are so many tools that, to your point, um, with a with a, a you know disk based install, mm-hmm. um, you know you've got to buy the next version for that to be um, to be able to do the latest things that you see your friends or that you see in the news. So I think there is there is an inevitable move to the cloud that has empowered us to be able to offer hundreds and hundreds of services to people to allow them to be as creative as they wish. And, you know, when I think about my time in office, it was a very much about allowing And when we talk about modern workplace. It's about allowing a new generation of workers to be as creative as they feel they need to be or they can be. And I think when we talk creativity, it's easy to just think about design. But you new know, creativity is about, you know, being in the right place where you feel most comfortable to do your work. It's about giving you enough tools that they allow you to do anything you want to without any restrictions. And so. Uh, at its heart, it's about moving to the cloud and the flexibility of, and the smart services that power that that enable us to provide just a multitude of tools that, um
0: as I say, empower everybody to achieve whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, I never, ever thought I'd see the day that Microsoft was offering uh, Linux as a platform. Uh, and I think the stat is that Microsoft earns 20% or more from every android phone sale because they have one of the patents that is core to android um so microsoft actually is now becoming a a, the open company which when uh when i was a systems engineer and marketer at microsoft it was always called the closed uh microsoft company you know there's there's one way of doing and it's microsoft's way or no way you know and um uh that always used to be targeted so were you in microsoft before Satya took over, or were you uh post uh, Barma? Where were you? So at?
1: it was. So I, I joined in. Um, the, when was it? 2014, 15. So probably a year or so after Satya joined. And and I think okay. a lot of a lot of people, you know, ultimately a lot of success that that Satya has had has been about um, has been rooted in culture change. And I think that's so critically important. You know, at the end of the day. And I think this is, t- this ties into your point about open source and, 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 um, essentially building for competing platforms. Because I think Satya recognized that, you know, we, we had to be more empathetic in the way that we built. And, you know, you could do it our way or you could do it in, in a very, very fast growing way, which is open source. And, and I think there is a lot of value. I think from, from memory, I think, uh, I think Microsoft is the biggest contributor to um, to the open source community in terms of both it, the, 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 the the content it adds to it as well as the, the content it um, um, kind of adds value to and then repost back into the to the open source community and I think that's that's as much about being um, a trusted partner as it is about you know using the I guess using those platforms for our own benefit as well um, the edge uh, chromium browser being a perfect example of yeah. that but but I think that the reality is is that we have to recognize that there is growth in other areas where we can still add value. And, you know, whilst I think many, that there is many Balmer era advocates who would say a lot of what Satya has done has been sort of seeds of that, that, that Balmer sowed without the, the right kind of mentality that I think Satya has bred, um, there is, we would never have got anywhere near the levels of, of growth that we have, um, you know, we are encouraged to use competing platforms to, to, to I mean, you'll see as many iOS devices as you will Android. I mean, there's still a, a number of Windows devices around phones, but, you know, ultimately you don't learn anything if you keep doing things the same way.
0: Yeah. No, it, I mean, people may be surprised if you list some of the companies that Microsoft acquired GitHub. I know that really annoyed Google that really, really annoyed Google that one. Um, skype we all know that one um linkedin was a surprise acquisition again um integration with various other services um so yeah i think uh microsoft has changed and I, I was just curious whether you were there to see the culture change from Barmer's day through to today really and i was just wondering you know what what that felt like if you were there but i mean you, it's, uh, it's elgate i guess yeah, although you know, culture takes a
1: long time to shift, and and you know, when, when not as, as much as, as the, the share price. price. Well, that's true. Um, yeah, that's been pretty healthy growth. Um, but I but I think ultimately culture shifts take take such a long time to happen, and you know, you would argue that you know, no organisation is ever perfect. Um, there is always work that needs to be done, but ultimately, it's deep rooted in this drive to be more empathetic. And when I think about and, and hear about a number of stories of, of the stack ranking and the way that we used to evaluate people, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that that creates a, a, an environment of fear where people aren't encouraged to take risks. And, you know, one of the best and probably most pivotal moments in Satya's tenure, certainly from a culture point of view, was the Hit Refresh book. It was this recognition that there was a different way that we could do things and you know also influenced by the growth mindset book it's about recognizing that things actually getting you closer to success and and I see a lot of opportunity, a lot of times in meetings and, and the, my, my new group particularly there is a lot of emphasis given on people trying and and not being afraid to fail and and that also comes with again to the point about things like LinkedIn and, and github like they are areas where ultimately they are communities, and there is growth in those communities. But you know, it's 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 different because we recognise that it isn't just about buying competitors off the market. It's about where we can add value and where we can learn from the way those communities evolve and grow, um, and bringing that those cultures into our own business as well. And I think that's where I I certainly and, and you know, O2 and Telephonic was a, a fabulous environment. Um, but I but I do see a lot of almost encouragement to try to fail, because it's only from that that you learn, and and it's not easy. You know, often we 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 did um about when we first launched Microsoft Teams about two years ago. Um, we did our a, a live broadcast for the first time ever. We did a simulcast on uh, on Facebook Live as well. And we often say, you know, would would our LT have been as understanding if the live stream had failed or there'd been a mistake uh, in the broadcast? And that that again is where those ch- kind of challenges around culture, um, you know, are really tested. But the, the culture has been such a significant part of the way in which we've changed and the, and the openness with which we've uh, adopted and embraced other platforms and technologies.
0: Yeah, I think such a uh, terms it. We moved from the know it all culture to the learn it all curiosity culture. Absolutely. Right. Perfectly big sp- big, perfectly put. Ab- yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So let's take a little bit of a step back before we take a step forward. Um young Paul Fabretti, um UK bound, how did it all kick off for you? Where where did it all start? Well, wow, um,
1: I'm not sure if I ever really felt young. Um, I had grey hair at 22, <laughs> which is probably a, a telling factor. Uh, I mean, I, I'd i always probably since about 2005, as as you know, you you were in the same kind of space at the same time. Um, really, kind of recognized that social was a was a really interesting opportunity because it allowed us to convey, I think, a brand's values in ways that the web at the time just couldn't. Um, and and I I I guess bounced around. I guess is is one way of looking at it, but also. In a quite constructive fashion to to try and um, to try and just get a, 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 a an experience or experience enough to be dangerous in, in a range of different comms disciplines, because I think I recognized early on that you know, social was just one set of tools that allowed an individual or a business to communicate differently, um, but ultimately it still had to have brand values, it still had to have sales functions and customer service functions. And so I guess I, I saw the opportunity fairly early on to be um, to, to a path to for social to be more than just a, a, a cute way to talk to customers, um, which ultimately led me to a number of different environments and agencies, both my own as well as as others, dedicated PR agencies, web branding. Um, which ultimately really led me to the role at o2 um, which at the time was was a, a, a almost as much of a surprise that I got the role as it was to anybody else really um you know it was a it was a hugely so, uh, social driven business on um, one which was um, one which was a really um, you know powerful brand and which I um, was able to lead the social on which which is a great opportunity and
0: um what does that mean leading the social for o2 i mean you know don't get me wrong some people go what was your job just going on facebook every morning and posting hello it's o2 here again i mean what does social mean in the context of let's start with o2 you know where you started out
1: yeah, so so I think there was there were definitely two main areas to the, to the work at O2. One was um, in support of brand and commercial campaigns and activity, and as you well know, as many of the listeners will know, um, it's a very brand-led business um, and very customer-centric, and a lot of it was about trying to, I guess, be empathetic and be and be um, recognise that we had a, a, a role to play as a social team in the everyday lives of our customers. Um, that was about delivering daily deals as part of the priority um, priority moments package, as well as making sure that we were delivering technology offers in a way that customers expected. And a lot of younger customers were very mobile savvy and mobile friendly. And so they were able to, um, I, I guess, sort of feel that the brand was somewhat um, understanding of, of, of their needs. Um, the second part was, was almost entirely about customer service. But again, you talk about customer centricity. Um, you know, we we were there for the customer because ultimately the most the more loyal customer is the one that stays. And um, the social function was um, was born from uh, obviously an unfortunate incident in respect of um, uh, the outage that the business suffered about a few months prior. But social became the vehicle through which the brand was able to somewhat resurrect itself because of the way that the uh, crisis was handled. And so as I say, there was, there was ultimately two part, two core parts to the, um, to the role. One was to support the branding and commercial uh, activities, and the other was very much about customer service. Um, and a lot of the, the work that was done in the customer service was, was very much about um, just being that first touch point. Um, ultimately, there were financial benefits to being on Twitter versus um, call center. We could provide faster, more effective answers to customers rather than them having to go through the, um, the telephone systems, which ultimately meant that, um, it was actually cheaper for us to support. Um, we were also quite innovative in the sense that we also were able to use Twitter as a, um, almost an automated uh, customer service. So um, we created a tool with um, IMI Mobile, which was um, called Tweetserve, where you could actually DM us um, something like a hashtag data. And the system would poll for your account, um, assuming you'd made the connection between our billing system and your Twitter account, and would tell you how much data you had left.
0: So, like an early chatbot, really, one of the first. Absolutely, things. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the potential for that was, was was immense. But ultimately, it was all about customer service. Uh, it was about being able to give customers the the level of service that they expected. Um, and and that was really interesting. It was it was. Emerging uh, together of two worlds which is the old customer service model with the immediacy of social media um and, and that that was a really exciting um challenge and how um,
0: how would you be measured on success then I, i'm curious I mean, because a lot of lot of people go oh well is it the number of likes you got is it the number of and it, that that was such a poor old metric that some yeah. people used so i'm curious because obviously the world's moved on that was you we're talking a good what ten plus years ago. But yeah, 2012, 13. Yeah, that. But just casting your mind back, what what would you be metriced on? You know, what did success look like for you and your team at that point?
1: I think from uh, from the branding side, a lot of it was about reach. You know, we we recognised that there was a lot of commercial um, systems in place where you know facebook ads was was you know not considered certainly it never has been for me considered something that a social team would lead um, facebook just became the vehicle through which ads were delivered so a lot of it in, in the commercial side was about reach and branding was about reach and sentiment and and being able to demonstrate that our message was reaching the right people um and that the sentiment in response to that was effective and obviously submetrics like likes and retweets, that kind of thing, were all quite useful um, ways to sort of signify within our own world that our, that our, that our material mattered. Um, but as far as customer service go, um, a lot of it, when we, when we costed out the cost of something like a tweet response um, and, and resolution versus a, a phone call, you're talking financial. Uh, and that was where, that, in some respect, the tweet service system was born. Because we recognized that if we were able to um, automate, or even, even though customer service through social was, was significantly cheaper than a phone call, automating through social was, was almost free. Um, and so a lot of it was um, primarily um, responses resolved. So the percentage and the ratio of customers that were inquiring to us and that were resolved, um, the time it took to resolve those issues, but also the cost saving through us resolving those issues, and of course, the more because we were a cheaper way to solve problems, um, the more we, the more customers we, customers' problems we solved, then the more money we were saving. So it became quite an interesting kind of cycle of value-driven, financial-driven. But, but you know, a lot of a lot of social campaigns haven't actually evolved significantly. You know, in terms of. The way that people evaluate them i see used to see uh, even as far as last year really a lot of people still submitting likes and reach um, and sentiment as ways to be able to demonstrate that their campaign had been impactful and valuable
0: how should we measure social now and its impact then if it's not on those metrics how how should companies not just microsoft just generally given your experience as a social media expert in this space how would you say companies should look at measuring the impact of social?
1: I, I think on the, the, the customer service side, I think nothing has changed there. It's about volume. It's about cost efficiency. It's about um, uh, speed to response. So I, I don't think anything's really changed there. I think, it, but, but in terms of the brand and the, and the the market, pure marketing side, I think it, it very much depends on the, the role of social within the business itself. Um, you know, I look a lot of... Um, look at a lot of sort of fashion, fashion companies um, and, and the, in the retail space, um, you would absolutely argue that reach and, and awareness are still important uh, drivers of, of value there for social. It's certainly when you think about the role of, of people like influencers, um, you know, that, that is about reach. And you know there, there was a uh, piece of work done not long ago which implied that even influencers with significant audience reach um, don't actually have the ability to convert sales. Um, so, so I think in some respects it's, it's still very much a reach game um, than it is a, an actual financial conversion game. That said, the, the, the last team I led with an office was an interesting hybrid of social, search and web, whereby we were using um, social vocabulary around certain key terms that we recognized uh, and that we wanted to be visible for within SERPs to to influence the content we created and and by that what i mean is if somebody's looking for microsoft outlook they know what they're looking for and, and we will uh you know over 80 percent of searches we will have at least one item on on page one but if somebody's looking for an unbranded term so secure business email yeah we could say well look we've got microsoft outlook but there was almost i think the number was about 11 percent of searches um we had uh, something branded from Microsoft with visibility on page one. So really, really small. So when we realized this and we recognized the opportunity, there was over something like 32 million searches a month that if we were able to bring these this trio of web, social, and search together, we could actually start to make a really significant dent in the amount of people that were able to uh, not only find our work, but also be pointed to materials which would then lead them down our sales funnel. And and so to your point about social and it, as, as an outright discipline, it was it very much does depend on, I think, the industry you're in. You know, we're a very sales focused organization and social for a long time had been a, a brand entity, if you like. Um, but in 2000, 2017, I think it was, we were really looking at a very different role for social. And so the 24 Community managers that were under my um, sort of team, if you like, were starting to use SEO-driven vocabulary to detect conversations that they'd never been able to look at before. And so they, those same people, were able to then you know, converse with potential customers and say, "Hey Sam, um, you know, we, we've just launched a white paper on this. You might be interested to hear more." And so we were using this ambiguous vocabulary in social to help point people to the kind of things that they were actually looking for, but for which they didn't know the specific name. And so, you know, in that respect, we're talking very much funnel metrics about top funnel kind of reach, but also further down um, uh, ebook downloads, registrations. And, and we were even actually financially converting people to subscriptions of Office 365. So we were very much embedded within the commercial language of the business
0: what sort of tools did you use in in those days we'll we'll, obviously when we talk a bit about more about what you're doing today um we we can always touch on that again but what sort of tools did you use to measure sentiment i mean look i'll I'll, I'll give you an example back in the day when i was at netscape we didn't have the web (laughs) strangely netscape was trying to produce the web so we didn't have the web and (laughs) so we had that old stupid pr paper clipping analysis you know metric that used to come in a bound copy every month and you'd look through it and it'd go green and red and all that rubbish right um now that was the only way that as a marketeer we could measure the sentiment of what our messaging was doing out there obviously with the web you mentioned likes and retweets that was just one way of just you know looking at the velocity was the other one um but but what tools did you fundamentally use that were they internal self-built Microsoft tools or O2 tools or were they off the shelf Suite type things? I mean, just just casting your mind back to those days, really, I guess. I'd be curious to know what you did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it was vastly,
1: vastly different than to now, although I think the tools have got more sophisticated and I think they're a lot smarter. I think when I think back to sort of 2014, 2015 and, and around that time, one of the biggest issues was that um, platforms like Twitter just didn't allow, brother, rather the, the tools that were analysing Twitter just didn't have enough characters and context to be able to determine the, the, the accurate sentiment of 140 characters. And when, as we were talking earlier about language recognition and, um, and, and ultimately trying to understand the, the, the meaning behind um, a series of words, Ultimately, you look at a blog post versus a tweet. It's easy to get the context of the sentiment behind a blog post because you have a number of other variables of language within that piece that can give you an idea of whether it's a good or bad piece. But a tweet doesn't give you that. And so I think whilst a lot of the tools still give you kind of the basics, and we use Springflow across Microsoft, we've got a great partnership with them. And um, they've got some really powerful tools that allow us to um, identify in very, very credible ways um, the top influences for a topic, you know, Marshall and the team at Little Bird, which were acquired by um, Sprinkler, ha- have added a huge amount of value. Um, but ultimately, the tools themselves haven't, I don't think, vastly changed, but the, the power and their ability to work um, has done has been re- remarkable. Uh, you know, Giles and, and Will and the team at Brandwatch have an incredibly powerful listening tool, which, which again, I don't think has really changed dramatically um, in the last... 10 years Um, but certainly its ability to be smart and to make those to make the insights more easily um detectable um and the value that they add um in terms of the insights they provide is just massively more um you just have a higher degree of confidence that that the output of this tool is is what you can work with rather than having to sort of dig deeper and waste hours of just trying to dig into a few tweets to see if anything um, was, was truly negative so yeah I, th- I think the tools haven't changed massively but the trust in them has uh, has come with the, 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 the work that those kind of companies have done in the back end um, to make it more reliable for us
0: so what I'm hoping in the next five years or less is that machine learning I don't really want to say AI too much because it's becomes such a, an amorphous uh, term but machine yeah. learning on a set of data that you can measure a metric against um adding hopefully some intelligence to context culture and location which we were talking about earlier so taking a tweet and being able to understand that, that the person making that tweet is spanish therefore there's a certain context to the um, tweet itself in other ways I, i'm just hoping that the tools will become better being able to take large volumes of data and give us the tools. And I just wondered if you've seen anything that's coming down the track that might look like that.
1: Um, good question. I, I mean, I, not, not not explicitly in the in the social listening space. I think, you know, there, there are certainly aspects in terms of um, machine learning that ultimately um, the tools are only as good as the data that goes into them. And. When you think about the, the origins of a lot of data sets that have been used to to teach machines to date, um, there's just been, in many cases, an implicit, but also in some cases, an explicit bias. You, you hear of um, our friends over the the, the water in. Um, in Seattle, who've had uh, had a huge uh, recruitment challenge because yeah. the tool assumed that engineers were only female, were only male, and um, you know that's that's an inherent problem. Which you know one would hope that with there be more more focus, more emphasis placed on inclusion and diversity, that that bias in the definition and the creation of those algorithms is is eradicated, as 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 much as it can be, or at least in terms of the output of, the, of those algorithms, that we're more mindful that there is a there is a known bias that, that we need to account for in the results. Um, so I think in terms of, as I say, social, I think it's it, there's certainly been more value in, in you know, more accuracy in being able to determine the sentiment behind 140 characters or less. I think in terms of um, machine learning, I think it's about recognizing the bias that exists and accounting for that in in, in any output. Um, but you know I, I would love to think in five or ten years time we'll have that the, the, the empathy and the diversity and inclusion drum will have been banged for long enough that you know when we do talk about hiring we do talk about um, uh, to your point sort of regional differences or ethnic, ethnic differences that they will be factored in um, it's it's just simple things like the way we might use, we uh, as as we find in in, in the US now, um, we have friends that call me Mr. Paul um, <laughs> because of their background. That's just the yeah. way that they encourage their children. In the UK, people's kids may call me Paul. You know, so there's. I think when when you think of those, even I mean, that seems like a simple thing to have to get right, but it's important to recognise that there are different cultures that behave differently and, and when we look at data sets to teach machines they, they all of those subtleties have to be factored in
0: i think microsoft had a massive example of that it was called microsoft tay do you remember her i do yes and uh, the story goes for those who don't know that um, the team the microsoft team in china the ai team had built this wonderful ai twitter bot that was uh, resembling a teenage uh, female in China and uh, the way that social media works there is that obviously it's more police police stated so there's less negativity and whatever and so this bot was beautifully it did well it learned a lot I think Satya brought it over to a demonstration at a conference in in the U.S. and then the poor thing was let loose on Twitter in the U.S. I think what was it within 24 hours or 48 hours she was a uh, bigoted, Nazi-swearing bot trained by um, the, the Twitter community to be negative. Uh, and that amazing difference of where AI uh, hits the road with culture and people uh, and context, uh, I think that was a massive wake-up call to the AI community that, you know, this isn't going to just be a, a one-way panacea. Um, so to your point, I guess... Um, AI can be um, amazing, but you have to look at those biases and those dangers within it. And uh, yeah, I think I, <laughs> go on, Paul.
1: And I, I, I think to your point there about about um, about Tay um, was that there was huge learning from that. And you know, to, when when we talked earlier about culture and growth mindset, you know, this is a business that recognised that there was risk to doing what it did. And whilst I think Nobody would ever want to be associated um, as extensively as we were with something that was was ultimately abused and and, um, uh, not used in the manner in in which it was intended. The learnings from that in terms of the way that the system started to learn from the vocabulary that was being directed at it um, really set the foundations for um, a a, a, a more a more um, what's the word probably responsible approach to to AI development than anybody had perhaps forecast before. And, and I think without that, and I, you know, I see that that there's a, there's an incredibly um, smart lady at at Microsoft called uh, Mira Lane who runs the AI ethics team. And, um, you know, they spend their entire existence um, pondering over these ethical dilemmas um, around not just the, the way in which these things talk but the way in which they learn but also building guidelines about who can access our technology um and the way in which we want the technology to be used because you know ultimately as soon as uh, and and you see that with um with, with the deep fakes you know when that kind of stuff gets into the wrong hands you have the potential for a huge catastrophe And and, and as far as I'm aware, the the ethics team is one of the largest in the industry because that's how significant we take our responsibility to the development of AI. Um, We just cannot allow this to be um, abused or get in the wrong hands. And, um, you know, we have a responsibility to make sure that it's it's used um, ethically.
0: Is this a a top-down or a bottom-up initiative? I, I say that because... I think uh Google Google's um initiative was to go from the bottom up you know I think Google employees are very angry with um uh the team allowing uh, them to start to build a Google search engine for China and they were angry with them using facial recognition for um law enforcement and so they went out on strike to do that Amazon was the reverse. Bezos was very much, no, we're an American company. We support American government. But then the shareholders went, uh-uh, you ain't doing that. And that was a top-down change to their AI ethics. Where's Microsoft in that? Is it, Isn't a staff saying, look, Satya, we don't want this amazing technology that we're developing being used? Or is it uh Satya and the leadership team, or is it, you know, an external force, the the non-exec board coming to Microsoft and saying, "Look, guys, you can't do this. This is this is dangerous stuff." Where where is Microsoft in this flow? I guess where, where's the culture um, there? It's an interesting one. I think I I, I would say it's, I, I'm kind of
1: going to sit on the fence a little bit here, a because I was I've never, I haven't been privy to those conversations. Okay. <laughs> um, but but I think B, when I, when I see the culture of the business, I think it's through the line. You know, there is there is through, I guess, Satya, Brad Smith um, and and many of the comms folks, particularly all the way through to the product people. There is there is a recognition of the huge global and societal responsibility we have to developing AI in a way that is ethical. And that's, you know, I would argue that's from the top down, but I think that's the bottom up as well. You know, I think we've all recognized the value that this has, both in terms of the future of Microsoft, but also to the future of the world. And, and I, you know, when you look at that level of responsibility, I don't think there would be anybody that would work in the business or on that business that wouldn't agree with the same sentiment. So, as I say, I, I, I kind of feel a little bit like that's sitting on the fence, but I think that's about alignment. And it's about Satya setting out a vision, It's about showing that we are building and doing things the right way. And um, that comes as much from the people actually in the weeds doing it as it is about setting the vision for for how how we want it to be used.
0: Okay. So um, we talked about you being in O2, but we really haven't talked about how you got into Microsoft. Um, What was your next logical step out of O2? How did you get the job in Microsoft?
1: So it was um, it was it was I guess a bit of evolution. I, I um, moved into Telefonica Europe and then worked globally on um, kind of corporate Telefonica initiatives, uh, communications initiatives. And um, but then I was sent a, a JD for a role at Skype, which seemed really cool. Um, uh, Robin Grant and We Are Social have done some amazing work on on Skype Social a long time before. And it just felt like a really good brand to be able to really grow and um, and develop a, a, a more extensive social skill set and experience, I guess. Um, and so uh, I had an introduction, went through nine interviews, and ultimately was given a job um, with the goal of being in Palo Alto, um, which is where um, Porter Drive, which is where Skype was headquartered. Uh, very shortly after that, um, office. Uh, Kind of, there was another reorg, and an office became office marketing, and office social became part of my remit, which then meant moving north to Seattle um, and Redmond, which was, um, as somebody said to me, you kind of get the rain of Manchester, but the um, the, the the summers are brilliant here, uh, and I can't disagree with that in any way, shape, or form. It's been the summers are beautiful, um, and so so really, the the role kind of somewhat grew organically. Um, and as I say, that very much the goal was to try and find ways to bring more value to, to social than had, um, than had been in the past. It was very much the kind of the end of the food chain as far as where value was, um, was added. But we were able to, as, a, as we talked about earlier, through this combination of um, kind of organic and web and social, bring about some real commercial value to, to, the, to the social. Um, discipline, Um that was, I mean, we did some incredible work with, um, with I'm going to say, millennials and inverted commas, but certainly in, in trying to reach um, a new audience, uh, a new younger audience who were very much already cloud-centric in the way that they worked and the way that they functioned. Um, Office 365, whilst new to them, was not new in the way that they expected their products to work or their, their, their productivity tools to work. So it was very much somewhat brand building exercise as much as it was about driving commercial impact. And, and some of the work we did was very, very much groundbreaking in the sense of um, the way we the way we approached social, both using organic and paid. Um, we, we built this um, storytelling model, which um, it, 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 at the time was was. I'm going to say revolutionary because it was partly my idea, but it was okay. really about trying to make sure that we were delivering emotional messages, but in a very specific targeted way so that if you watched half of a video um, in the first chapter, which was, again, intentionally, emotionally engaging, then we would retarget you with chapter two, which was delving a little bit deeper into the scenario that we were painting. So um, we'd gone from this stage of, uh, identifying oneself in the story that was being told to identifying the same kind of challenges that the story was telling. So how do I get started? So what are the tools that I need to do to be able to be like Sam? Um, and so again, based on this video retargeting, this 50% um, of consumption of the video retargeting, um, we built our own funnel of people who by the end of the fourth chapter were really hot to to convert in horribly commercial terms and so the cca at the end of the campaign was very much focused on a picture of sam and, and a video of sam really very visibly using office 365 to achieve the goals that you had also kind of that kind of mirrored your own and so it was things like that that really gave us a, a kind of a spotlight to social and, and and using social insights as well we were able to really inform a lot of deeply and heavily commercially focused activity so you know those kind of things were really interesting but they kind of entered into sort of more performance marketing territory towards the end and i i think my my background has been about storytelling and creativity and and really trying to tell stories that at least had were were rooted in data but which weren't necessarily um solely measurable by, by by data if that makes sense
0: yeah i mean you keep using this term storytelling which is is wonderful um and i think you know from the native campfires from the nomadic humans we've always told stories this has been the way that we've articulated um our past and been able to transfer knowledge i guess that's how it's always Mm -hmm. been in the past and what we're now seeing is storytelling. So uh, there, there's a wonderful lady in Canada. Uh, you may know her or may not, Tara Hunt, who I... Yeah, I've known Tara
1: for a long, long time.
0: Yeah, I interviewed her recently and I, I love her. and I think she came up with a series of um, very intelligent videos. One was content has no value, attention has no value, influencers have no value. And everyone's going, okay, well, what has value? And she said, fundamentally, it's relationships have value and deep relationships yep. and... And I I sort of quizzed her on it. I said, you know, so where's this thing about content? She said, well, look, you know, if you've got a big budget in the world, you can just keep pumping out content. But the minute you stop, will the end customer still engage with you as a brand, right? And, you know, she references Harley Davidson, you know, you can turn the pipe off, you know, and that $1 you may have spent will be a $1,000, but other companies may have to continue pumping a $1,000 in to get a $1,000 out because they just have no relationship. And she was saying, The same with attention you know the minute you stop paying attention to one group because we've all got limited attention maybe you know you aren't the brand that they will turn to and and, and, you know influence is the same thing but she was talking about relationships and i think my question is is that what storytelling means to you is it about building deeper relationships with the brand microsoft rather than the product office so are you now moving away from being uh, let me give you a slide deck of the 25 great new features that Microsoft Office is delivering in this version 26, right, which is how I used to have to sell it, which was, yep. you know, hello, good morning, it's got cut and paste. Hello, good morning, it now does OLA. You know, and it was just a feature sell, right? Um, is the way that you and your team work now taking messaging about the benefits, and is that what storytelling is to you, or is it still a case of, we're going to tell you a story, but in that story is going to be wrapped in a whole bunch of features that are going to tell you why you should buy Microsoft. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, when I when I was mentioning the sequential storytelling model earlier, that was that was an att- a deliberate attempt to recognize that attention is scarce, um, but also that we, we we have a responsibility to to approach Selling, if you like, in a very different way. And in, in that particular instance, it was a younger audience that had no negative history of Microsoft, of, of Microsoft Office, but also had no loyalty to Office 365. And so the goal was to and, and those can become a mantra for, of ours. We need to be in the business of selling Michelin star food in takeout packaging. Um, the point being that consumption habits and media habits were changing and fragmenting in so many different ways. Um we needed to dice our content up much smarter than the way we were um, and that meant not being able to tell everything in one go and be uh, and be and be more but be more emotionally engaging and relevant as well and um, so you know that that was where I think there was a very different different approach to the way that we used social particularly to tell a story but I think cumulatively um the Microsoft story is has been just beautifully crafted it's been um But I don't want to be disingenuous to or devalue in any in any way that the stories are nothing without action. And, you know, when we talk about the brilliant work that Steve Clayton has done with the image team, um, Steve started telling stories about developments and the people behind the development of building 88. I think it was, um, which was a really fascinating story about from the perspective of people that you would never have heard of at Microsoft before. And that was very much the case with some of the work we were doing in, in the design group. It wasn't about saying that our new surface was was beautifully crafted, or it wasn't about saying our oh, UI for Windows Calendar is just amazing. It was about getting under the skin of the people or of the business and the people who were crafting these incredible things. And and so that's where I think the, the, the point about storytelling is is the accumulation. Of really fascinating perspectives that you wouldn't expect to hear from Microsoft the old Microsoft, and I think, as I often used to say to to the team at, at, um, at o2, you know the, the ex- excellent customer service and reputation we have gives us the permission to do the brand storytelling and the brand activity that we want ultimately to have customers' attention for you know that if we can't get our act together, then we've got no right to ask anything else of them. And so I think the same is true of the storytelling is that, you know, Microsoft Life, for example, is just a wonderful scenario where we're able to share the incredible things that are happening within Microsoft campuses globally. But ultimately, if we're not living and breathing that truth. If we're not actually doing day to day supporting pride, if we're not demonstrating that accessibility and inclusion is important, if we're not demonstrating that we are becoming the business that our customers want us to be, or we are we are made up of the people who are and we've got no material to tell. We have no story to tell. And it all goes but all boils down to this ultimate mission of trying to empower every person on the planet to achieve more and do more. And that, and that, and that's you know, it, it's easy to, for that sound for that to sound glib, but the reality is, is that we are genuinely living that culture, and so the storytelling becomes an easy part of that. And so, to my current role, um, that's very that's really critical because we, when we talk about AI, we need to be able to articulate the value of AI in the ethical, and responsible way that we talk about um developing ai globally we need to be we need to have the same message when we talk to regulated industries as we do um manufacturing and retail we need to have uh, very clearly articulated stories and um perspectives from every different scenario so that wherever we are probed wherever we are challenged whether it be in the field or at summits or with customers that we are we are all talking the same story and and that ultimately boils down to a culture which encourages people um to be themselves and to and to, to really it, it's kind of a hard one to articulate but it's it allows them to to be themselves at work to do their best work which ultimately allows us to be to to convey the same story it's just our own version of that
0: story i've got two questions for you then who who defines these stories for you is, is it your team? Is it is it the global team that then brings it down to you? And then are you the story police that makes sure that the story is consistent? <laughs> I, I'm just curious, you know, how, how, yeah. does, how does this, you know, because we've all played Chinese whispers, whether it's, you know, as a young kid or whatever. You know, Paul tells me that the story about AI is uh, X, Y, and Z, and then I, I interpret it from Paul. And by the time I meet customer in the NHS, I've told him, you know, slightly different story, and the story isn't the same story because guess what? I, I'm interpreting a story, right? And that's yeah. what it is. So, uh, so let's start with the first part. Who 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 determines these stories? You know, the the, the outward mission, the outward statement-facing stories. Is it Steve Clayton's team? Is it is it, is it somebody else? Is it a PR agency? Because it used to be Text One Hundred in the old days. Um, and then how do you ensure that those stories stay consistent? I think the,
1: um, I think ultimately the vision begins with satya. And, and, you know, when you think about, as you talked earlier about growth mindset and lifelong learning, you know, there are scenarios where when you check anything you're building for a product or the messaging, it's like, does this, does this reflect who we are in, uh, as a company? And, and you know, that's, that's critical. We all have to be able to look at that and interpret and understand what that means. But in terms of the messaging, I think, Frank, Sure, who's our chief communications officer's team is just incredible. And they've provided a structure and, and a mechanism through which a lot of teams are able to operate that very clearly articulates what we stand for. Um, and when I look more specifically in the US subsidiary, for example, there is a lot of work of back and forth between the global industry teams, if you like, whether they be the manufacturing or retail. A lot of it is about customer centricity and and and, and ensuring an approach to to building our messaging and our plans and our marketing activity around what customers need And, and in an era of new technology customers often don't know what they need and so it's about trying to solve for their outcomes like what's the outcome that they're looking to achieve and so again going back to these the understanding of things like growth mindset and lifelong learning if you think about the way in which we, we go to market as being customer centric, then you can always kind of kind of rely, re, rely upon teams to think customer first. So it's not about what we need to sell and what our quota is. It's about what are the outcomes that we know we can solve for and how can we best articulate that value to customers in a way that they will understand. And so, you know, I know there's, there's a, a lot of um, there's a lot of back and forth between. The global teams who can't build these visions, if you like, for our perspective on the retail industry without talking to one of the biggest retail sellers in, in the world, i.e. the U.S. subsidiary, for example. So there is a lot of back and forth that's done in terms of alignment of talking to customers and listening to them and hearing what their problems are and formulating a global perspective, albeit in some cases a regional one. To be able to build something that genuinely matters to um, to the local teams, and I think that's that's I wouldn't say that's necessarily a, a huge change. I think the the drive to be customer obsessed absolutely is, because it, to your earlier point, it becomes more about how can we serve the customer rather than how can we sell them what we've built, and and that's where again we talk about tech intensity, about being able to recognise that that every business is now a digital one. And we have to be at least one step ahead of our customer to be able to help them through the digital transformation so it all boils down to this idea of of recognizing that our own plans are somewhat really just mirrors to what our customers need and you know as long as there is clear lines of communication between the local teams the customer and our global teams who are trying to account for various regional nuances um, you know you can't really go wrong because it's it's ultimately serving the customer is what's um what's so valuable
0: okay uh last few few minutes because i know this is a, a friday night and um you've got family time um steve barmer famously was developer 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 the the famous uh chant that he did um what is in Adali's? uh charm what is his mantra what, Is it Azure, 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 or Azure or or is it something else is it ai ai where is where is microsoft five years from now is it you know what 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 is such as current i guess vision you, you mentioned it's led by him so what is his current vision it's it's an open company i know we talked about the hybrid cloud we talked about the use of linux we talked about you know uh, meeting the clients on their platform rather than having to force them onto yours, you know office is now a ubiquitous uh platform agnostic application um something I never thought i'd say and never thought I could say actually <laughs> um but what what is such a compared to steve where, what is his vision then today i um it's It's an interesting one because I think there's a technology side to that
1: answer to that and a and a cultural one and and I think for me the not having been around the Balmer era. um, I I would say that the the thing that is incredibly empowering for all of us is is the mission, the Microsoft mission, to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And that feels like that's ingrained in the back of my eyeballs. But but I think when you you look at that, you you see a, a responsibility that there is no platform that's off limits. There is nothing that we can't do. Because at the end of the day, it's about enabling it's about providing tools to people that allow them to work how they want, when they want, irrespective of their abilities or disabilities. Um, and when you look at it like that, you have to be platform agnostic. There is no two ways about it. Um, now, when you think of it like that, you also think about what value you can add. And um, you know, we talked earlier about simple cloud storage versus the addition of cognitive services that can be applied in the cloud, this hybrid cloud we have. Um, uh, another buzzword if you like is um intelligent edge And that's where you talk about the, the 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 data connectivity or the cloud connectivity of of sensors in a field in africa that are providing intelligence to farmers to help them with crop yields and so you know when you think of that this idea of empowering everybody um it's it's really deep rooted in this culture of empathy and things like the adaptive controller for xbox are a perfect example of that where it was it's is it the most financially um rewarding product microsoft sells i suspect not but it's about doing the right thing it's about committing to empowering everybody to achieve something and you know it's 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 not about open source it's not about ios it's not about android it's about are we enabling people to access the technology that allows them to fulfill their lives as much as they want to and if we're not then that needs to be where we need to be uh, and i and i think i would certainly argue that the businesses you can't go wrong when you're trying to be inclusive and that's that's not to, to diminish the value of the many many different inclusive activities that happen that are really important um but it's about doing the right thing by everybody and and we cannot
0: have that you know we cannot restrict access to our technologies um if it means empowering everybody two final questions then: one about the business and one about you so uh, bear with me Um, (laughs) microsoft i would say as an outside observer missed web 2.0 mobile didn't succeed um bing really didn't beat google um and and you know uh, there have been other technologies that Microsoft missed, and that was on barma 's watch, I'll, I, I grant you. And Web 3.0, which is really what you were touching on, you know, the use of IoT, edge technologies, AI, um, Microsoft, you know, and the cloud, all of those are Web 3.0 technologies, for want of a better word. Um, we talked briefly about Cortana, which was the front end facing uh, AI has it um, is that going to be another technology that Microsoft skips because Alexa and uh, Google seem to be the hot buzzwordy consumer, at least facing technologies. You know, um, Microsoft's going to put a lot of energy into AI and making it available, but its first iteration out of the client end seems to not be getting the market share. Is it going to be like Windows Mobile and um, a good technology, but it just doesn't seem to get Developer input and and consumer buy-in.
1: I think that's an interesting question. I, I think there there's there, there's there's a timing value to to a lot of this stuff, and, and I think there is you know the Google Assistant platform, Alexa platform, um, have have gone straight to consumer, and and that's where you will hit that critical mass of devices, which in in turn then breed um a system that is more capable of of, of of adding value. I think that's that wasn't the space isn't the space that Microsoft occupies. And so I think there is there I suspect there is a um a quiet satisfaction with the value that Cortana brings. From the Windows perspective, you could argue that it's probably the most installed Smart operator in the world, given the, the amount of um, of users there are of, of Windows 10, for example. But I think there is there is a there's a level of maturity of of user expectations, and um, you know there is that sort of inflection point at which the the systems become sufficiently accurate that they can become relied upon to be useful. And and I think if anything, I think Katana was was probably a little bit ahead of her time in the sense that the customer base isn't necessarily wasn't necessarily used to conversing with a system in the way that Cortana was capable of. Um, and, and and I think then you know around the time of, of, of Alexa smart devices coming onto market and being so affordable and accessible, they you know that they, they existed to to be the vehicle for the Alexa voice. Um, so I think you know katana is still an incredibly valuable tool and there's a lot of um really really smart back-end um, intelligence that she can add to the enterprise space with those connected services but in and of herself um i don't think she's in the same space as um as, as alexa and, um, and google
0: assistant okay i mean i think it'll be interesting to see how I think we should separate Cortana from Microsoft AI. And I think Cortana is an application. And I think Microsoft AI is a tool set and an API uh, that could be used elsewhere. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Last question then, Paul. Um, Where does Paul see himself in 10 years from now? What's Paul's story going to look like? How does this story look going forward? You're the storyteller. Tell me where you think your story goes.
1: Uh, I think there's a vision and a reality idea there. I'd like to be retired in a lake house in uh, by Lake Sammamish somewhere. Um, but I think uh, in reality, I I, I don't know. I, I as much as I think I always envisioned retiring relatively young. I I, I think when you there is that vision and that that you know that there's a compulsion to be at Microsoft now. It's um, you know you you look at opportunities, but you ultimately look which company is behaving the way in a way which Makes me want to be there, and and so I, you know, I, I certainly would would love to think that certainly in the communication space we will we'll will continue crafting. Really, I, I I say the word humanitarian, but I I think human impact stories um, all the time. I think the more and more these technologies begin to take over our lives and and become an integral um, way to add value to our lives, I think there is, it needs people with experience and level headedness to, to to understand the human interpretation of these services. As we talked about before around the the, the role of ethics and AI. Um, you know, as us as storytellers, um we need that experience as you talked about almost the sort of Web 1.0, 2.0. You know, a lot of the experience that us older folks have uh which i never thought i'd admit to saying um (laughs) is that we you know we we were there through the birth of these systems and these platforms and the way in which human nature evolves as a result of them and you know that for me is you know anybody can get a job in social but i don't necessarily see there being a career in social um because i think there comes a point where you realize you don't have the personal time and commitment to learn new platforms and new channels but the the, the root behaviours are still the thing that matters the most, and I think it's it's that it's that evolving landscape that is the one which is just so exciting to be part of. So I would hope that I'd still be involved in some capacity to to be, to be looking at communication strategy in a way that um, reflects where society is in in ten years' time, and, and you know who knows where that's going to be.
0: I was going to say you haven't asked your wife clearly then what your future role is going to be and seeing where she. well, that, be. <laughs> well that was more of a lakeside vision, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. Paul, as I will tell you, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure talking to you again. Um, hope it's not ten years before we do talk again, um, but thank you. It's been a really great story.
1: You're very welcome, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been too long in in, uh, in our first chat, so I'm, I'm really glad to have had
0: the time with you. Sir. Take care. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, Sam. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week, same time, same place.